When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. It's across the room of us, 51, and it's Monday, July 12th. Steve, you know what that means, right? It means Italy are European champions. Oh, oh really? Oh, sorry. I, I, I was thinking about the men, uh, men's singles final, Wimbledon, um, and then also the, uh, the Olympics are in two weeks' time, right? Um, yeah, the Olympics expecting. coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that, that's, let's talk about that, the Olympics. That's, yeah. <laughs> I did watch the Wimbledon final yesterday. I was pulling for uh, Berrettini, but Berrettini. You know, he ran into to Novak, and uh, you know, there's a reason Djokovic won his 20th major. He did give him yeah. a match, though. I don't watch a whole he lot did. of tennis. I mostly watch, like, I'll watch some of the, the big-time finals here and there. But yeah. uh, he fought him hard. That first set, when he went down, I think he was down 5-2 and came back to win, was impressive. But was yeah, impressive, when, yeah. when you're up against an all-time great, it is, it is difficult. It is, yeah. Uh, I, like, as soon as he dropped a set, I knew that the final was Djokovic's because you're not going to beat Djokovic over five sets yeah. or outlast him. But mm. you're right. In the first set, 5-2 down, uh, you know, for, for a first Grand Slam final, many people could, could just crumble and accept defeat, and he fought back. And that was, yeah. that was very impressive. So he's, he set himself up for a good future, hopefully. Um, but yeah, he was not the only Italian win yesterday in sport. It was uh, Italy beating England on penalties in the Euro 2020 final after a one-all draw uh, through regular time and extra time. So uh, let's talk about how Italy won that. And we're here not just to talk about Italy, but uh, talk about what we can learn from Italy's uh, overall display that actually won them this trophy and what, what specifically Mourinho's Roma can learn taking into the new season. So I think, Steve, let's just, you know, ditch the pleasantries and talk about the most spectacular thing about yesterday, which is that Italy, uh, you know, semi-final aside where they, they ran up against Spain and had to improvise a little bit. Throughout this tournament, even yesterday, they stuck true to their principles of uh, playing high up the pitch and a, a very progressive game plan. Is that something that you would expect from Roma or are you just, you know, is it all up in the air still? 
I think it's up in the air. I mean, historically speaking, it's not what you would expect from a Mourinho-led side um, because, you know, he does have that kind of defensive mindset in many ways from what we saw back in his Inter days. I haven't watched a lot of his teams of late. I watched the Tonham documentary. I know that team, they had issues on both ends of the pitch in the documentary season, at least when he was hired because of injuries and such. I know Kane and Son were both out at the same time at one point, and there was a lot going on for him there. So it's kind of hard to see exactly how he wants to play when so many of his, his big, big time stars were out. Um, but, you know, hopefully he takes some, some notes from Roberto Mancini's approach. Cause I don't think anybody three years ago could have expected an Italian team to play so progressive and so uh, high up the pitch and, and pressing and doing all these things. Um, and, and one thing I have to say, I, one of my buddies texted me after the match, I said, he brought out a good point. He's a Milan fan. And he said, you know, guys like Maurizio Sarri and uh, Giampiero Gasparini have to be given some credit, you know, uh, indirectly for Italy's victory because they kind of showed people on the continent uh, and on the peninsula specifically that you can play a more aggressive style and win. And the league has changed a lot because of that. We've seen in the past four or five years, especially the last three years after Italy kind of fell apart uh, in, in World Cup qualification. Uh, so it's good to see that that kind of has carried over from the Atalantas of the world and Maurizio Sarri's Napoli's and, and teams that were more aggressive and were, you know, not rewarded with a Scudetta because Juve was such a powerhouse. But, you know, Champions League appearances, Atalanta now three years in a row qualifying for the Champions League. So I guess those guys have to be given some credit too, um, maybe to help influence Mancini in some ways and have that that courage to move away from the old Cantonaccio. Yeah. And then the, there was also that movement that started in 2014, I think. Uh, I think it was actually after it being made a 2012 final. And they, they wondered, like, how can we live with teams like Spain in mm-hmm. particular and Germany? Um, sorry, excuse me. The... Sorry. That's my Alexa going off right there. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that they were, they were, there was um, uh, Olivieri, the former Palmer coach, who was hired as like the leader taskmaster in, at Corrachiano, um, thinking about like, look, we need a, a rejig of how we teach our Italian youth to, to, mm-hmm. to live with this football abroad. So it's been a long uh, journey from 2014 till now. But before we, before we like limit the scope to, to Roma, like you're saying, you know, this involves Atlanta, Milan, you know, uh, asking you as an Italy fan, like, what, what are your, what are your preferences now when you watch football? Do you do you do you prefer? I mean, I know it's easy to say it the day after you won the Euro, Euro twenty twenty trophy, but do you prefer this style, or do you still um, find yourself like nodding heads with people who say like, you know, you can't play this way. You have to play, um, you know, individual. Ta- you have to play tactically brilliant first. Like have individual tactics, eleven on eleven. Make sure that you never be, be defeat uh, get defeated individually in your duels. You know, the, the traditional Italian way. Is it, or is there room for both? um uh, how, how when you watch matches what enthuses you more i this is more exciting to watch uh you know it's not just being you know uh, the, the the most recent example so you know you stick with it i think part of it too has to do with the players at your disposal i think this italy team has enough talent and enough uh skilled players like the verattis and the Jorginhos and the chiesas to play this more progressive approach whereas antonio conte's side that made the quarterfinals and lost to germany on penalty kicks in 2016 I don't think he could have gone with this approach, even if he wanted to, with the players he had at his disposal. Like talent-wise, that was one of the lower ends. You know, Italy went through that that period, uh, 2000, I guess from like 12 on, where they 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 were lacking some star power on the side. I mean, you know, we saw the roster that was put out for that 2016 Euro Cup, and it was impressive that 
they were able to pull out wins against Belgium and Spain in the knockout rounds. Like to get to the round of eight was impressive and take Germany to penalty kicks was impressive, but they had to play that more uh, solid defensive side uh, and just find ways to, to grind it out. Whereas this team, you know, they, they suffered against Spain. Uh, Mancini admitted that Spain with their tiki taka was, was tough because they took away the ball and Italy couldn't do what they wanted to do. Uh, so they kind of had to go back to that approach a little bit in that match. Like we talked about last episode, but overall, this team showed that they have the ability to, you know, play high up the pitch and not get hurt on defense. A, a big part of that is the, the center backs, of course, who will have that old mindset in some ways, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I know you're, you're feeding into our next point. But I, I want to skip that to, to the other thing you just brought up right now, because I, I want to ask you, OK, so what what exactly is it talent wise that you think makes this work on a, on the technical level, this style? Because like, if we look at this Italy team, and skipping ahead to a point I made, I was going to make further down the line. Um, they, their goals and just their general like match results have come without any real great mm-hmm. individual success from their star strikers, if you can call them star strikers. Um, uh, we saw, I mean, we were just talking about before we got on air, uh, Caltrude Finanza reported today that the, the viewing figures for this Italy win, where they've actually won the whole tournament, are actually uh, down compared to Euro 2016 when they didn't, which is the Antonio Conte team that you're talking about. So, you know, the, maybe there's a lack of star power in this team all the same because people are tuning in at a lesser rate nowadays. Um, but so what? Where, where does the individual talent come in for you? Because, um, you know, this this uh, when I look at it, it looks like a team where the, you know, the idea of getting out the pitch is so that you, you, you lessen the difficulty of the passes that you make in the final third. You know, if, you, if you don't really have that star power up front, you make it easier to to get those finishes on the break or or catch the opponent in possession and, and you know catch them cold. Um, but you you're saying that there's uh, individual talent there. So you're looking at midfield or you're looking at other departments. You, you just mentioned defense as well, obviously. So what 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 do you feel is like the, the real stars here? Yeah. So when I look at the talent that could allow Italy to play this way, I know Badella didn't have a good match yesterday, but I think Badella is one of those guys you can really you know, lean on for the next bunch of tournaments. He's 23, yeah. 24 years old. I think 23 at this point. He's he's a, a star in the making. He might not be a, a bona fide star yet, but we've seen in Serie A how good he is. Yeah. Uh, I think he could have really emerged if he had a better tournament, but I think I think he was one of those guys that he played so many minutes for into this year. I think he was kind of burned out a little bit by the end. He looked a bit uh, drained yesterday, but, you know, Verratti and Jorginho are so good on the ball when they have time and space to, to move the ball. We've seen how Jorginho can dictate play, how he can get into the passing lanes uh, and break up counterattacks when Italy does get caught out in uh, possession a little bit. Uh, Chiesa, to me, is a guy who's very explosive. I, he still has some refining to do in terms of his, his ability to distribute a little bit because he is kind of a head-down dribbler at times. But we saw he was Italy's most dangerous player again yesterday in the attack. Uh, he yeah. forced a great save from Pickford, missed one just wide a little bit before that. Uh, it was a shame he had to go off in the 85th minute with a bit of an ankle issue after he got in on a tackle. Uh, yeah. But he really just, showed... Just, just, to, just to reinforce your point, I was actually breathing a sigh of relief as an England fan watching when he had to go off because I was like, yes, it's one less threat that we have to deal with. So yeah, yeah. he was the most dangerous player. Yeah, and from an Italy perspective, I was you know I was watching one of my buddies yesterday and, and, and we were both in agreement that if Italy was going to find a goal, a lot, it was probably going to come through him. And it, mm-hmm. it didn't in the end, but he was the guy that, from an individual talent standpoint, almost made it happen a couple times. Um, you know, we could talk about coming up. I mean, if Nicolo Zaniolo comes back fit, which is mm-hmm. our, our big hope as a Roma fan base, but 
for Italy, can you imagine if you have Federico Chiesa playing on the left wing, if they stick with the uh, 4-3-3 under Mancini for the next couple of tournaments, and you have Zaniolo on the right wing, yeah. then you just need to find a striker who can put the ball in the back of the net because yeah. down the wings, you'll be dangerous to anybody. And that's the star power I think there is would be like a Zaniolo and Chiesa can grow into those star, those bona fide stars. Mm. Um, you know, Spinazzola was a star of this tournament. We'll see how he recovers. He's also 28. So he's uh, kind of on the, I guess he's at the peak and somewhat trending down after the injury, but you know, there's, there's no like generational player out there right now. Zaniolo might turn into that. Maybe Chiesa might turn into that. Uh, maybe even Badella could turn into that, but they have definitely more talent than I've seen on an Italy team in a while, I'd say, from an individual yeah. talent standpoint in many positions. Well, the last thing was who I was thinking about the most when, you, when you're saying, imagine you have uh, a t- an attack made off Chiesa on the left, Zanio on the right. You know, those two are going to cut inside. So mm-hmm. you're losing width in the front line, and that's really begging for two wide players to like dominate those those flanks. And Spinozola is one of those guys. Yeah. You know? um, so I think possibly. Italy may be looking for the emergence of a, a you know, a, a marauding winger down the right as well, just mm-hmm. to, just to, you know, front up your options a little bit there. Um, but we'll see. Uh, obviously, the, the other talking point is the experience at the back. Yes. And, uh, you know, this is a, a team that played a high line yesterday against England with a 35-year-old Leonardo Bonucci and a 36-year-old Giorgio Cellini. Uh, showing that you know a high line defense really relies on compact team shape in front of them to to you know plug those spaces ahead of them so they have less to work to worry about they don't have to worry about um playing offside or or you know or if god forbid a runner gets in behind them then you recover but uh, it's really not about individual pace as, as a lot of people say obviously pace is is great to have if you're going to play a high line but it's not necessary if you're playing in the Euro 2020 final when you win albeit on penalties clearly it's not necessary so um you know what uh, what what is the key to like, you know, why why is there if there is a fear of this progressive football by some people in Italy still, where where does it come from? Because we we've seen all these like myths being like shattered by Roberto Mancini's Italy. Um, what what exactly are people waiting for in terms of like what you know what why is it that uh, when an Atlanta gets knocked out of European football, these people say, well, we need the traditional inter back, or you know when Roma gets marauded by Manchester United, uh, you know. 6-3, you say, well, you should never play that like that, that tactically in the first place. Well, well, I don't understand people's apprehension, Steve. Yeah, I mean, if you have two center backs, the way Chiellini at 36 played and Bonucci at 34 years old played, you can afford to be more progressive, as we call it, you know, to, to play higher up the pitch because you have that solidarity in the back. I mean, those two guys, Chiellini is like 37 in about a month, I think. And this guy was, there were, there were times when you wondered if he was like going on 27, like in the prime of his career, some of the tackles he made, he was rarely caught out of position. He had the one uh, where he got yellow carded for pulling down Saka. He got caught in space, yeah. uh, which I was surprised because he looked like he had position originally, but then Saka just kind of used that pace. And Keelini made the, the smart play, took the yellow card, knew he was able yeah. to. Uh, and that's, you know, some people were complaining that he like really ripped him down or whatever, but you know, that's, yeah. is it, professional foul it's a professional right. foul you know so um and Bonucci honestly plays better when he's with Chiellini we've seen that um th- throughout his career when he left for mm-hmm. Milan he was a bit lost in the wilderness a bit and then he comes back to Juve and he's back to being himself a bit but um you know when you have two guys even if they're in their 30s that, that can play that smart defensively and shut down you know Raheem Sterling was pretty quiet yesterday um yeah. compared to what he we saw against the Danes when he was just marauding all over the pitch Harry Kane, I saw a stat, someone posted it in our comment section on the site. 
in, in response to my sinners and saints that this was only the second time in Harry Kane's 61 English appearances that he was held without a shot creating action or shot on target in a match. Mm-hmm. So that speaks to what the Italians did. Now, part of that was Italy controlled, I think, by 65% possession by the end of the match. Uh, yeah. But also when he was in possession, he did not get in many dangerous positions. So, you know, when you have guys that could defend like that and take guys out of the match, then you can play higher up the pitch because you have less fear of getting hit. You know, my, my one fear coming into this match with Italy was that the pace of Sterling, and I thought Saka would start, he didn't. I thought those guys could give problems to the, the back because they were quick, but even Sterling's pace didn't really seem to trouble them much. There were sometimes uh, Chiellini would get back and make a tackle and, you you know, positionally they were very solid. Well, I I would say on that, that the, from an England perspective, I think that England just didn't use Sterling's pace and, and all that because the, for like 80 minutes of the match, it was Jordan Pickford launching the ball up front mm-hmm. to Harry Kane. Yeah. So you, you're dependent on Harry Kane pulling down the ball and then laying off to, to his teammates. And I think that's where Leonardo Bonucci in particular does his credit because he was winning all those area duels. Yeah. So it was like, it's really all him. Um, but in terms of this high line, there's an, isn't a lot of this credit uh, uh, meant to be given to Jorginho ahead of them, like you said, yes. about the interceptions and all that. Because, uh, you know, we had Jose Mourinho today on Talk Sport this morning saying, Bonucci and Chiellini only run into problems when you play a false nine against them. And there was there was some of that yesterday with Harry Kane coming deep in between the lines. So, you know, he's, he's that player who's like making Bonucci and Chiellini worry about whether they have to press forward or run back. And when, you know, when you're in the mid thirties, you don't want to be worrying about no. running in two different directions, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of this is down to Jorginho, is it not being that, that shield in front of them? Yeah, and that's why I called him out earlier and I called him out last episode. He didn't have the interception numbers like he did against Spain, probably because Italy had more of the ball this time around. So he didn't have to, you know, in- intercept as many passes, but uh, he was he was great all tournament for Italy. And that, I think, is a, a big difference uh, when you have a guy like that, that those guys can- don't have to worry about getting outpaced as much because they're not getting caught in these no man land situations as much. Um, I remember against Austria, there was one example when, um Bonucci kind of got caught out by who was their striker I, I can't remember their striker off the top of my head um but yeah I can't remember either I, I, I can't remember sorry I was but, sorry it was uh, yeah. Arnautovic Arnautovic yes yeah. and not the paciest guy um and you know not the not a top end striker like a Harry Kane or some of these or a Lukaku or somebody like that and without Chiellini there that's when you saw Bonucci a little shaky once in a while maybe the understanding wasn't there with the Cherby like it is with Chiellini from playing for years together uh, both domestically and internationally, but you know, it, a better striker could have hurt them at times when when Keelini wasn't there. So, but the two of them, yeah, when when they're in these man battles with number nine, especially Keelini, we saw what he did with Lukaku and these guys. He he gets up for that. I mean, this guy still gets up for that. He he's a real tough guy to play against. But yeah, Jorginho yeah. Get, deserves a lot of credit because he breaks up a lot of opposing play before it ever gets to that point. Yeah. So yeah, as as we're saying, as you were saying before, it just looks like a vindication for club managers like uh, Milito Sarri, who you know who loves Jorginho, um, uh, Giampiero Gasparini to a lesser extent, because he plays a double pivot, so it's not exactly the same thing. But um, yeah, these 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 managers who love interceptions and and cutting out the ball early and staying high where the ball is, uh, you know, they like you said, they've really given some kind of uh, they've been given some vindication by Italy's the manner of Italy's win yesterday. But what what is the fan reaction like around? Uh, if, I don't know if you've seen it today, Steve, but maybe maybe more appropriate to ask you about the fan reaction in America amongst the Italian Americans um, and the fan reaction around Italy. If you know if you know anything about that and around Europe after this win. 
Yeah, so I went to a, a viewing party in a, a town nearby of suburbs of New York over here, and um, quite a few people turned out, a few hundred people. They had a big screen set up, almost like they do in the piazzas in Italy, and uh, yeah. it was jubilation when Italy won. I mean, Italy hasn't been on the top, you know, you know, technically since 2006 when they won the World Cup. First time they've been on top of Europe since 68, um, even though the Euro Cup gets a little less attention in the, the States as, than the World Cup, I guess, because, you know, the U.S. isn't involved, and the Latin American countries aren't involved with a lot of immigrants from those countries and things like that. Um, but ESPN did, did a lot of promoting of the tournament. Quite a few people turned out. I don't know how many of those people, you know, follow soccer the way we follow, you know, Italian soccer on a regular basis. I'm sure some were just watching because it's the national side, but uh, a lot, a lot of happiness, a lot of jubilation, especially uh, even though it was a nervy match for the most part for Italy because they were behind for so long and then going to penalties and all that. Um, you know, the reactions that I saw posted on Twitter and stuff in Italy, you know, they had the big watch parties. I saw um, one guy, Wayne Gerard, who I follow, who, who writes uh, some stuff for the official Roma site once in a while. He uh, was in Rome and tried to get into the UEFA watch party and was sold out before his queue even came up to buy a ticket to the official watch party. So, you know, yeah. plenty, plenty of excitement and interest in Italy, maybe not the ratings on TV like they got in 16, which is a bit surprising to me in some ways, especially after the long year we've had with the pandemic and stuff. You thought people might yeah. be more into something to, to bring the country together, but uh, maybe I think maybe they're wiped out by Berrettini. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I think uh, it's definitely something for Italy to build on. You know, there, there's definitely things they're going to have to work on going into world cup 2022, especially when you consider the ages of Bonucci and Chiellini uh, and the striker position, which we talked about did not produce for Italy. Um, yeah, you know, that's Immobile. That's what I was going to ask you, ask you next because you, you've done the Sinners and Saints today. Yeah, you didn't give didn't give out halos to everyone. You have some people to to talk about in terms of uh, merited criticism and and how they didn't show up. So here, here comes a tough part. You know, like there there weren't it wasn't the perfect one. It never is, but mm -hmm. there were setbacks in this campaign. So how you just said Italy can build a success, but how, how? Like who who has to get cut now? Who stays and, and who goes? And, and what do Italy learn from their mistakes in this tournament? Yeah, so I think the first thing is, as great as Chiellini was, you can't rely on him being ready for World Cup 2022, 18 months from now. He'll be, he'll be 38 years old by then. You know, who knows if he's still playing by then? I think Alessandro Bastoni has to get more playing time with the national team and some of these qualifiers coming up, maybe in the Nations League semifinal against Spain to really... Uh, let him cut his teeth if he if he has a poor performance against a, a good Spain side so be it you know it's only the Nations League it's not a World Cup uh, but he looks like Italy's brightest hope in the back to replace Chiellini I would think maybe a Cherby is still uh, an option because he's not quite as old as the other two but Bastoni looks like the star in the making along the back along the Italian you know defensive center back you know history that that lineage that they have so to speak um, I know we're both big fans of uh, Gianluca Mancini, and if Bastoni can turn into the Chiellini-type play player, maybe Mancini can fill into the Bonucci spot. Yeah. Same kind of mold, good passer, not, a, not the greatest defender at times. He can be beaten at times, similar to Bonucci. So maybe that partnership could work because um, the under-21 team that I saw um, a couple months ago when they were playing the Euros, they, they didn't have any star in the making looking defenders like we've seen with the Bastonis of the world. So yeah. um, maybe not quite that, the does, talent. Does that take Gianluca Mancini moving to a bigger club? Uh, I think it depends on how things go with Mourinho because with Mourinho, I, I feel like he's one of those guys that could really take the next step. Okay. Um, you know, it would help if Roma's playing Champions League in another by next season. Though. Yeah. Uh, that's so, what I'm thinking. You know, yeah. not, not trying to knock Roma, but 
um, you know, if you're if you're looking to build an understanding with Bastoni to lead your nation, then surely you have to be playing the most competitive games, right? Yeah. Roma haven't been a Champions League club for a couple of seasons now. Yeah. So all those matches that they're going to play this year against the Juve's and the Inter's of the world, uh, certainly, hopefully, Mancini stands out because he was on uh, Roberto Mancini's radar. He was one of the last cuts from the roster uh, mm-hmm. in favor of Toloi, probably because Toloi had a little more versatility to fill in that right back as well. Um, but I think Mancini is a center back and certainly surpassed Toloi by then if he's mm-hmm. uh, getting the proper playing time and the proper coaching from Mourinho, which you would expect. And then I think the other concern is striker at this point, because we, we talked about it. Immobile did not show up after the second match. Really, he there was one match he was all right. I think it was the Austria match. I think he was all right before he came out, if I'm remembering correctly. But man, Belgium, he was very poor. The last two matches wasn't very involved. I understand. I know there's the argument that he didn't get a lot of service, and I agree with that. So, you know, it's not all on him, but he's got to do he's got to do more uh as a striker you know and Belotti the same I'm a big Belotti fan too and he did not really do much when he came into these matches he was very poor yesterday I felt and even the other matches his work rate defending lead was better than what he produced offensively in these other matches when Italy needed a goal yeah it seems to me like these guys Immobile and Belotti are used to um counter-attacking football where really what their main concern is they they run to goal Beat that beat the defender and shoot on goal. Yeah. Whereas if you're if you're playing in the opponent's half and you've like reduced the space to goal, you're really gonna be more concerned as a first priority about how to uh, uh, make a run that you know like either unmarks yourself like from two defenders on you or um, creates room for another another teammate to get into mm-hmm. that, that lane. Um, I don't, I'm not sure. I wasn't really watching Italy closely enough to know how well Immobile and Bellotti did in terms of the second area, like like freeing up space for teammates to run into. Maybe they did well. I don't know. Um, but I, I get the feeling they'll be judged mostly on uh, the ability to get into dangerous areas themselves and get on the score sheet. So what what are you looking for? Are you looking for um, a complete forward like a Harry Kane who can who can fit into this style of play, or are you looking for more like two like a two striker system where uh, these like two strikers may not be like the best at everything in the world, but they're, they're both dangerous because they work for each other. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I think you're absolutely right on immobile. And I think that's part of the argument in his favor, because I don't want to lay all the blame on him. Like I said, he comes from a very different system. He's not ideal for this setup. It's not, doesn't yeah. really fit his traits well. So yeah, blame has to be put on his shoulders as the starting number nine for six to seven matches, except for the Wales match when things were wrapped up in the group stage. Uh, same goes for Belotti. And it's been the same thing with them for a while, both of them on the national side, where they don't really perform the way they do for their club sides. Um, and I'm thinking that's why Giacomo Raspadori was called up, even though he didn't play much, because he mm. plays more of that style at Sassuolo. And maybe Mancini sees some things, especially with the hot finish he had to the season. So maybe he gets some looks in the qualifiers. Uh, yeah. Uh, because he's, he's another guy. He's the guy team. I think has the potential to really be the, the, the man for Italy. Uh, he's streaky too so far in his career. We saw that with uh, Genoa this year, streaky score, but he mm-hmm. does so much. I was watching, he's one of the guys that for the under 21 stood out to me when I was watching them earlier in the yeah, summer. Me, me too. I, he, I didn't see much of him. I, I remember, I remember seeing him at an under 21 tournament. He was the last year or two years ago. I can't remember why. Um, and he was really good in that. Yeah. Like he was leading the line. Yeah. yeah, he is really good. And he is, he plays the ball well too. So he can, if you have, and if he develops over the next couple of years, even if it's not by World Cup 2022, but maybe it's by Euro 2024, uh, Mm -hmm. and he's more like that 25, 26 age when he's starting to hit his stride, if he develops, you know, and you have 
Chiesa and Zaniolo playing off him, that could be a dangerous trident up front if that's the direction Italy is still going in their approach. Yeah. Um, can, can Roma sign him if he's going to be a national icon? Or is it, has his dad ruined all those chances? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there, there were those links last time we talked about way back when and how we both would have liked that signing. I think it, you know, if Roma sticks with Jekko, which you haven't heard many Jekko exit rumors lately, it makes you wonder if they're really pursuing a striker to start this year. I don't know. Yeah. Like, you could do worse than bringing in Skamaka to compete with uh, Borja or compliment Borja as another option because he's the kind of guy you could develop into, I think, a, a pretty good number nine. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest. I, I personally, I don't think that Roma can afford a complete forward. Like, I, yeah. I don't think they can sign a guy like Skamaka because it's too expensive nowadays. Yeah. Um, I think that the best solution for Roma right now is to place two strikers up front who aren't necessarily good uh, in, in every single area, but I'll wear it counts. Like, they're, they're dangerous. They're goal threats and they, and they get goals. Like, like a boy who made it out. You know, mm-hmm. he, he won't earn respect um, off, the, off the bat. He won't necessarily have people believing in his image, but that's the point of Moneyball, right? It's like you take a guy who's unfancied and yet he still does a job for you. Yeah. So I think, I think honestly, if you get two medals and you play two strikers up front, which I know Mourinho hasn't done in his career, but I really feel like that if you if you want to if you want to beat the market to catch a Mercato, um, I really feel like that's the way to go for Roma because they have financial problems. For, yeah. for other clubs who can afford like the budget, I think you go for a Skamaka. Or someone who's like yeah. that role that's very much in fashion, you know, a complete forward like him. And if and but, if he's not, you know, a guy Roma can target, I'd like to see him move to a bigger club or even play for Sassuolo this year since he's still owned by them to to see if uh, he can cut it at a higher level and potentially be that guy for Italy. Well, the the, the story is that he's going to Juve, so mm. we might get you know might get priced out the market there. Yeah. Um, what about the late breaking news this evening, Steve? Is this a good idea to you or not? Argentina, who just won the Copa America yesterday, are proposing the international, a one-off or maybe a two-legged friendly versus Italy because uh, the Confederations Cup has been called off since 2019. That means that Germany are the last remaining Confederations Cup champions, uh, what they won in, back in 2017 uh, by virtue of winning the World Cup in 2014. And um, it's meant to be a friendly between the, the, the sorry, this new international being proposed is meant to be a friendly between the reigning Copa America champions Argentina and reigning Euro champions Italy, specifically in honor of Diego Maradona. And it's proposed to take place either in the Estadio Diego Maradona in Buenos Aires or at the El Diego Maradona Stadio in Napoli. So, Steve, w- would you be up for that? I think it'd be fun. Um, you know, I don't know when they would play it. I guess it would have to be kind of after the Nations League and things like that and, you know, fit in with the World Cup qualifying. But it could do a worse for a tune-up for the World Cup for Italy than playing Argentina once or twice. I think it's a good good way to get another high-quality opponent uh, and test out some things for Mancini going into a, another international tournament where you're going to be playing teams from outside of Europe. And Argentina yeah. might, be, might be one of the threats from outside of Europe because – uh, I watched, I didn't watch much of the Copa America. I was telling you beforehand, but I did watch the final Brazil yeah. and Argentina to me are not as scary as the Brazil and Argentina from a while back when, you know, they were just boatloads of talent for both clubs, but yeah. they're both tough, both physical. And I think it could be a good test for Italy to test their, their toughness a bit. Fair enough. I, I didn't even see the, the, the final yesterday. So, you know, more than me, I, I just heard that um, Argentina basically played, anti-football like England did and yeah. actually won it. 
So uh, a special shout to our our a player we both like, Rodrigo DePaul. He played a lovely ball to Angel Di Maria to to get the only goal, and he worked his tail off the whole match. Yeah, sounds like a DePaul kind of match when he, yeah. when, he when it comes down to physicality. So yeah, not surprised to to hear that. Um, so yeah, let's move on. Like we we've you know we've done our our piece uh, reviewing the Azuri, but we're really worried more about looking ahead to the Jalarossi this season. And uh, I, I personally feel, and this is the title of this episode, it's, this is Mourinho's one job with Roma. And it's been highlighted by the way that Italy have won yesterday. The nation have won by playing progressive football. And as you said, Steve, earlier, Mourinho is not known for that. He's known more for, I mean, he doesn't want it to be called defensive football. He wants it to be called counter-attacking football. That's fine. Let's call it that. But I think the one um, concern that some people have in terms of the Mourinho hire as, as far as sport and football goes is that you know especially after Euro 2020 now it's just confirmed that risk risk taking teams gain the edge over defensive teams uh, you know what whether it be in terms of match results or in terms of referees falling in your favor you know awarding you penalties um you know it's the one concern is that Mourinho comes to Roma uh sets up the team to counter-attack if you want to call it that or defend uh, you know, invites a lot of pressure on themselves in their own half in their final third, and you know sets up this barrier, this wall to defend the 18-yard line. It really plays traditional Italian football in terms of like you don't get beaten in your defensive zone, and uh, as long as you do that, you've done your job. But then you know they might rack up a few points. They might be in contention for top six, top four. You never know. And then suddenly you're, you're walking up to you know the Juve Stadium or you know a way to enter, and you're defending, you're defending, you're defending. And then a referee call doesn't go your way because you've been absorbing 70 minutes of pressure uh, and, you know, the UV player goes down in the box and, you know, they, they win a penalty. Um, and then, you know, Mourinho turns that into an injustice after the match and talks about how Roma are hard done by and tries to, you know, galvanize the, the player in the club in terms of that, that, you know, that kind of seize mentality that's worked for him in the past. But that was the past. You know, now we've seen that football has moved on from mm. uh, Mourinho's heyday. Uh, team, like, even... Like, for, for, I mean, God's sake, we're in an era where even Italy have acknowledged that you have to play more, that you have to work it more in your favor by staying in the opponent's half as much as you can. So, is it, is it, uh, you know, if we get the Mourinho that we're expecting in terms of defensive slash counter attacking football, are we, are we not just setting ourselves up for some avoidable pain here in terms of like falling on the, the wrong end of refereeing decisions next year? I mean, certainly when you're defending the whole match, it puts you in bad positions. We've seen that. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's the exact approach we're using to go with all the time. You would hope that he would he would have uh, adapted a bit by now. You know, he can't coach the way he coached Inter, what was it, like 13 years ago or no, longer now, I think 14 years ago since they won uh, the Scudetto and, and the Champions League or whatever it is. It's more than a decade. So things change, even in Italy. You know, we've seen that, especially in the last five to 10 years. A lot has changed in the league. Um, you know, certainly if things don't go your way, you can look like a crybaby if you're complaining enough. If it's, you know, a clear and obvious thing, you can't really complain about it because, hey, it's your own fault for sitting back and defending. And then if it's a rightful penalty, it's a rightful penalty. If it's not a, a rightful penalty, then, you know, that's when maybe the complaints. Uh, of injustice could work to galvanize the team like you had mentioned to kind of get them he, going he, but even when it's not right for penalty like england versus denmark right mm -hmm. um people get over it you know like they, yeah. they go well you know uh, at the end of the day the better team or the team that yes. deserved to win one you know mm -hmm. people people rationalize it whether we agree with the right or wrong of it yeah people rationalize it and they move on 
you know, so that injustice doesn't really live like even longer than 24 hours. Yeah, I, I agree because even we came on here and, and, you know, we said England didn't deserve the penalty in that moment, yeah. but they were the better team, the better team won and moved on. So you can almost justify, you know, it's hard to justify those things. If like Denmark had gotten the penalty unjustly and England went out, I think it would have been harder to, to yeah. rationalize and say, well, you know, Denmark was terrible for this whole second half and extra time. And here they are, they steal the game. That's when, yeah. yeah, that's when the injustice kind of can maybe uh, work in a mental way to kind of get the team together, I guess you could say. But yeah, I think, I think they do have to um, adapt a bit. I know you asked in our outline, like, what's the difference between Mancini's Italy and the Paolo Fonseca or Giuseppe Di Francesco Roma? Uh, yeah. What do you, do you see much of a difference? I, I personally don't, honestly. I, I, I do see some differences that have to be acknowledged. Like, for example, um, Paolo Fonseca's Roma, the, the players weren't so good at supporting each other in terms of uh, getting bodies around the ball and support each other. Italy are. Roberto Mancini's Italy, like, in the final yesterday were excellent at always um, moving to the ball in terms of like three or four teammates supporting each other, cutting off those passing mm-hmm. lanes, like really choking off the England players from, from their teammates, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a critical ingredient to have um, if you're going to play this style of football. And it's, it's really not about tactics. It's about how you buy into the team and whether you believe in what you're doing, right? So uh, that, that's a key difference there is that Italy really believed in what Roberto Mancini was asking to do where sometimes we saw Paolo Fonseca's Roma especially didn't. Um, Eusebio Di Francesco, with more experienced players in the first season, yes, they did, because they're professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, after he you know, was asked to manage a mix of players, like in Zonzi uh, from abroad with a bunch of kids like Zaniolo, then things start to go to pot a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's the, the belief was the difference for me. It's not really about tactics. It's really like that's that's a that's a human quality. You know, you, you either have that charisma to to lead the team and and get them to buy into it or not. And I feel like sometimes Fonseca and Di Francesco fell a little short on the area. So I'm not I'm not looking to absolve them of of all the you know the mistakes they made during their time here. But tactically, which is what people love to talk about, it's the same principles there. You know, you 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 lessen the difficulty for every player by using the collective approach you get up front you limit space to your opponent and you use that space yourself um and and uh, the, like a lot of people seem like they were happy to have a jose Mourinho hire because it was a callback to a tradition and it was like the antidote to the the, the major losses that we suffered under fonseca um in europe against united or under di francesco uh, the first leg against barcelona the, the copper disaster against fiorentina but I feel like those losses, okay, with Italy, they didn't happen because they're unbeaten in 30-odd games. But I think those are lessons that you go through when you're trying out a new style um, and you're trying to get with the times. You know, you don't just give up at the first sign mm-hmm. of trouble and then go all the way in the other direction. So um, that's, that's where I'm a bit perplexed by someone who might be celebrating an Italy win right now, but also celebrating Jose Mourinho being hired at, at Roma. Yeah, so I think the thing with Mourinho, and I think maybe even from the Friedkin standpoint, you know, I, I don't know how much X's and O's, so to speak, they know of, of football at this point. You know, they're pretty new to the, the sport, I'd imagine, coming from Texas. Uh, I don't know how much, like, MLS or anything they watched in their time. You know, I think they saw this as a business investment um, for themselves. And I, I think the Mourinho hire is way beyond X's and O's for them. I think it's more just the getting the big name, the big personality, someone who might be able to get the team together and hopefully win something for Roma and draw attention to the side, I'm sure. Um, 
I don't know if they even saw it as like, oh, we're going with like an anti-football now compared to what we saw. And one of the things I see that you're right, I think this Italy team bought into Mancini's system a lot more than some of the players did after that first season. Once we sold off, you know, Strootman and we sold off Nangalan and De Rossi was pushed out the door and all this stuff, you know, those guys bought into it because like you said, they're professional uh, and and they saw the benefit of DiFrancesco's football and what it could bring. And it brought them a a Champions League semifinal. You know, they, they suffered some heavy defeats, especially the first Liverpool match in in that champions league but it, they, they saw what it could do it also got them back to the champions league um but then yeah you start bringing these guys that maybe don't buy into di francesco or his tactics or fonseca and his tactics and it becomes harder and i also think the talent started to drop off for, for roma a bit after that first season once those guys started getting sold off even though they were aging some of those players uh i think there was a drop off you know you also sold allison who could bail you out of a lot of situations when you did get yeah. caught out yeah, Allison was perfect for the style of football. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was a big loss. I think, and I think in the other areas, what they sold off for me was the physicality. Um, yes. and they tried they tried to go in the direction of uh, technical uh, talent on the ball, but it wasn't enough. You know, it was like you, you lost too much physique, and then you didn't gain enough like real like baller status as players because they just like when you when you came up against physical team, now suddenly you were you know you were at a disadvantage and you couldn't move it fast enough to avoid getting yeah. hit. Um, so I feel that's where the loss was there, but I mean, this is a big topic and we're about halfway through the episode. So let's take a quick commercial break and then we'll get right back into it. I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal each week. You're here is in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, we're back. and uh, We were just talking about, uh, is there any real difference between Roma trying progressive football and Italy trying it and what we're we looking forward to next season? So, yeah, let's, let's go out to what you're talking about, Steve. Um, I, I certainly agree with you that you know, I'm not. I'm not saying the Mourinho hire doesn't make sense from a freaking standpoint because uh, commercially it's a win-win. You know, drawing attention to the club after all the all the money they've already sank into Rome. I, I have nothing against the freaking hiring, hiring Mourinho. It just makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But from a, just from a footballing and sporting point of view, uh, we're here talking about what what can we expect next season? Like, you know, are, are we setting ourselves up to? To cry injustice, or are we are we are we legitimately looking forward to making the top four and and maybe being in contention for some cups? Yeah, I mean, I I think if Roma can push for the top four and and ultimately qualify for the Champions League, no matter what style of football Mourinho is playing, people will be happy because it's been three seasons now since we've qualified for Champions League. Uh, so that that'll be huge if that can happen. If he can do that, I think the hiring will be justified not only commercially but also tactically. You know, with this side, we've talked about the mental mental approach, which has suffered at times. And maybe Mourinho fixes that just enough with a couple of players that are signed in that he in, that he likes the way they play, uh, like maybe a Granit Jaka. We saw he had a, a pretty good tournament with Switzerland. Maybe some other guys have brought in that fit his his mold. And we'll see what happens with left back with Spinazzola likely out for the first half of the season at, at the very least. Um yeah. But, you know, I, I think people want to win, I think is ultimately what it comes down to. And, you know, I don't expect to win the Scudetto, so to speak. But if they win by qualifying for top four, I think uh, it takes a lot of pressure off of Mourinho in terms of what kind of football he's playing. Yeah. 
if if Roma finish this summer not really signing anyone you know, is like head and shoulders above what we currently have. Do you, what are your what are your realistic expectations? Do you think that like with a, a squad that we have right now with no changes in it, um, but some players who are very talented and just like that little bit like that year onwards, like with years more experience behind them, um, do you think that that's enough? I think it could be. I would put Roma anywhere from the, you know, four to possibly seventh or eighth range, like last season where they were teetering for a yeah. while until they fell off. Uh, because if they don't fall off last year, they're in the fourth race for most of the season. They, they just had that really bad stretch when things just kind of all fell apart. And if things didn't fall apart like that, Roma's in the mix. They might not finish fourth, but I think they uh, at least qualify for the Europa League because we saw other teams with deficiencies. Uh, you know, there's a lot of changes managerially around the league, how that affects teams. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen on the Mercato with other teams. So it's hard to say exactly. Uh, but I think this group of players isn't that awful that they couldn't at least make a push for the top four if Mourinho gets their heads right uh, and can get them playing up against bigger sides. Because that was really the issue with them was they could not play up to bigger sides. Yeah. And then it started, it started like the trickle down effect where toward the end of the season, they couldn't even play against smaller sides because they were just mentally burnt out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Well, that's what we're going to talk about next in our final section is, you know, are we going to see changes to this Roma side this summer or not? Obviously, Tiago Pinto has promised last week that we will have a squad that is quote-unquote worthy of Mourinho by the end of the summer, by August. And, uh, well, first of all, let's talk about the 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 the, the, the links that have been uh, ask, have, having people question what we're doing because, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not questioning uh endlessly day to day i've actually tuned out of a lot of the catch mercato news but some people on our forum are questioning why are we being linked with center backs when we spent so much money on center backs in the last couple of seasons we've seen that roma been linked with kurt zuma uh jan vestergaard of denmark who's had a great tournament hinterreger of austria who i personally felt was amazing against um who was it yeah against italy of all people um in the, the round of 16 so you know all impressive names in terms of their recent performances but why steve uh, do, do we need a, a different style of center back or a guy with a different mentality at the back or what is it it's interesting that we're being linked with so many center backs so it makes you wonder if smalling and dory banyas maybe might be on the way out the door who knows um you know there hasn't been too many rumors about any banyas exit but we've seen smalling rumor exits um i think he was linked with everton and and a move back to the Premier League uh, outside of Everton as well. So maybe Smalling goes, but you're right, or not not you so much, but the, what you're saying from what people have said is that we've spent so much money on center backs. If Ibanez, Mancini, and Kumbula are still there, do you need another center back? Well, maybe Rome wants someone experienced to replace Smalling. I don't know, because Kumbula, from what we saw last year, still needs a lot of fine-tuning. Uh, yeah. We don't know what Mourinho, how he rates these players. Um, you know, Ibanya seems to have all the, the physical abilities to be a, a very good defender and he needs to get over some little mental hurdles. We've seen those with him, which maybe Mourinho's the right guy to fix Mancini. We, we assume, uh, is like the ideal Mourinho defender from what we've seen, uh, from him and what we've seen from Mourinho in the past. So you would think Mancini's got a pretty good chance at a starting spot on a regular basis, but you know, if Smalling goes and, and Fazio's out and. Juan Jesus is out, then I think it does open the need for possibly another experienced center back. What, what do you think about all the center back links? I, I can understand it from a point of view of getting more experience in, that's for sure. Um, and I guess in terms of like also uh, the guys who 
look forward to individual duels. Like those guys, like like we were talking about Chiellini before, where you like mm-hmm. you see him visibly excited by like cutting out the ball by being on top of his opponent directly. You know, those guys who like they're antagonistic in that sense. You know, um, I think Ibanez has that, but yeah, he's still come up under uh, like a, like we said a more collective style where you know at, like all, all of his exposure well actually no Atlanta is different at, Atlanta play man marking all over the pitch so he hasn't so I'm wrong with that Banyas has an antagonistic style but maybe maybe he's just not the best at executing it in Marino's eyes I don't know uh Mancini ditto um so maybe they're just looking for someone more more accomplished and more experienced in that sense but with that antagonistic character uh that's that's the best justification I can give for it yeah. but yeah, you know, it does seem like Roma have other areas of need around the pitch where they need to be spending that money rather than in the back line. We'll see. Yeah, I think uh, that's more... the the biggest thing with people saying, why are we looking at center backs would be because now with Spinazzola hurt, left back becomes an issue. We've already talked about striker and these other yeah. positions, goalkeeper. So that's probably the, the biggest gripe with it. Yeah, the apprehension. But uh, speaking about defensive uh, tactics, Roma are training this week with drones. At the, on the pitch, which we we were looking forward to under Mauricio Sarri, but to come under Jose Mourinho, all the same. And uh, a new fixture at the uh, Agostino Di Bartolome pitch, pitch number one at Trigoria Training Center, is the widescreen uh, TV that is been installed but on the pitch side as they train, and they look back over the, the drone footage while they're training. So, like you know, real real time feedback uh, from the sky. Steve, is this? Uh, does this, give, does this give us any insight into where Roma's focus is right now? And will it be a difference maker this season? Or is it something that is like, you know, nice to have, but easily mimicked by other clubs anyway? I mean, I'm sure other clubs are doing it. I think it's a good thing to have. I mean, we've seen how technology has been integrated into sport. I mean, baseball here, you know, someone hits a home run and you see launch angle and, and exit velocity and all these things now, you know, right on your screen in this, in, the, in a, a split second, you know, watching the hockey playoffs recently in the NHL guys are on the the bench with an iPad every once in a while to see what went wrong or what went right on a goal scoring play. Uh, same with at the NFL, you know, you see guy, the quarterback on the sideline with the iPad, no more printouts. They used to have the printouts of the, the aerial shots in the NFL. Now it's on the iPad, you know, football is a different sport where you can't do that in real time. Like you can in these American sports where there's an offensive side and a defensive side player switch, or they come off for line changes. Uh, but it's something to be talked about at halftime. Uh, I, I remember watching it, the Amazon documentary Mourinho, and he was bringing things up on these screens at halftime with Tottenham. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he's trying to integrate some of that with Roma. And the best time to do it is in training, really, for from a football perspective, because you can stop the training match or whatever you're playing, if it's seven on seven or 11 v 11 or whatever it is, or you're working just on a defensive tactic or something. Uh, say, look just, how you just screwed that up yeah exactly <laughs> and, and and use it as a learning experience and i think that's important when you're trying to instill tactics and you're yeah. trying to to school a lot of younger players on this roster still a pretty young roster i'd say in many areas you know yeah. you have your veterans like mikatarian and, and jekko and smalling but you want to get the vrs of the world to see where they could fix something or mancini or ibanez i think it, i think it's a good thing what, yeah. what are your thoughts I, on it i think it's a good thing but i just wonder you know I have no playing experience whatsoever, so this is just me speculating. But I just wonder how how do you see your mistakes from a bird's eye view, and then suddenly process them in real time as you're on the pitch? Because you yeah. only have like your you know your lateral vision, and then what's ahead of you. So it's it's two different worlds really that you're comparing at that yeah. time. But I, I like, guess the... go ahead, go ahead. No, well, I was just gonna say it can only be a good thing to have it. It's yeah. better than having nothing, right? But what, yeah. what are we gonna? Do? 
I was just going to say seeing it from above might give you a different view on the angle you took to cut off a player or an angle on a pass, things like that could be the benefit yeah. of the, the overhead. And then, of course, if a lot of these players are used to playing FIFA at home, then it's, you know, yeah. Yeah, then that's what they've been looking at probably their whole life, some of these guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, in other news, uh, other area of the pitch, further back from the fence in goal, Paulo Lopez officially gone to Marseille, but only with an option to buy, Steve. No mandatory clause and no clause based on appearances either. So what do we make of that? Is that just, you know, we're just dumping wages and hoping for the best? Or is this like, are we hoping that Paulo Lopez, are we generally hoping that Paulo Lopez is relaunching his career elsewhere? Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, dump the salary for the season and hope for the best if there's no, you know, mandatory buy clause based on appearances or anything else. Uh, maybe he relaunches his, his career there and Marseille do choose to buy him. But then if he's really, really good this year is the option price, you know, enough for what you may have gotten for him on the open market. We don't know. We'll see where it goes. Um, yeah. But from a Roma standpoint, you want to clear his wages off the books. You're going to want to clear um, Robin Olsen's wages off the books. So you can bring in Rui Patricia, who is expected to land in Rome soon. Tomorrow. Um, yeah. Tomorrow. So that move can be completed now that Lopez is officially gone. Um you know, and Tiago Pinto continues his work of offloading players, Under and now Lopez. So, yeah, we're, we're hoping that Pal Lopez uh, is like a really charming character in, in France yeah. in terms of like winning people over. But how, you know, we've been over this issue, so we'll be brief. But now that it's becoming reality tomorrow, how, how do you feel about replacing Lopez with Rui Patricio? Is it, is it lateral? Is it an upgrade? Are you, are you optimistic, open minded about this? I'm trying to be open-minded. I think I'm hoping he's just a solid veteran presence that doesn't make mistakes, that makes the saves he's supposed to make. Occasionally we'll pull one out of his hat. Um, but I'm not expecting miracles from him either. I'm not expecting Allison. I'm not even expecting one Musso quality from him. I'm expecting just a solid veteran who's not going to hurt us. What what price do you hope to read in the paper tomorrow that, that feels like, okay, we're looking forward to this or rather than we just got fleeced? I'm hoping not more than nine or 10 million based on, I think some of the numbers that were thrown out earlier in the Mercato, I'm hoping. Okay. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Another, what would be a guy, reasonable price for you? Uh, honestly, I was hoping, I was holding from at six. So yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think me. they're going to get him from six. I'm hoping to keep it under 10 at this point. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not interjecting my opinion here because I'm trying not to be like the, you know, the cynic for one episode, <laughs> but um in terms of another thing that uh, Roma find a difficulty with is uh, in midfield, Granite Jacker still no closer to being a Roma player today than he was yesterday. Uh, Arsenal apparently re reportedly holding firm at 20 million. Is this worthwhile, Steve, given that we just saw Brian Cristante yesterday put on a very Jacker-like performance in Italy shirt? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, especially depending on how much uh, Mourinho is willing to rely on Darboe, on VR. We don't know the DOR situation. Uh, you still have Jordan Vertu in the mix. So to me, at 15, it looked like a pretty good deal based on the way Jaka has played with Switzerland from what I saw from him, because I haven't seen him much in Arsenal, I will, I will admit, probably next to nothing. But I did see that that match against uh, France when they oh, eliminated them, yeah. and he was very good. Leader on the yeah. pitch, uh, probably their best player. Uh, so it looked like a pretty good deal. Now, when, once you start getting to the 20 range, it, it kind of takes it to another level. Like 20 million just feels like a lot more than 15. Uh, mm -hmm. because maybe that $5 million can be invested elsewhere, maybe at left back or something. Uh, and you're right, Cristante played very well yesterday. He was impressive, uh, yeah. making a lot of good runs, not being stuck in such a defensive midfield position. I don't know how that translates to Mourinho and what Mourinho is expecting to play at Roma. Uh, I, I, I read a tweet that uh, actually Mourinho was very complimentary of Spinazzola on 
where's he been doing the Euro coverage? BT Sport, yeah, I think, talk, over in the UK. Talk, talk Sport. Talk, talk, talk Sport. sport yeah. And I actually read that he was quoted as saying, "My captain," which I think was a little bit of a slip on his part. Uh, I don't really? think he's taking. I don't <laughs> think he's taking the armband away from Pellegrini if the person uh, tweeted exactly what he said. But uh, you know, I think he's been impressed, and I, I think Cristante is proving time and again over the past couple of seasons now with Italy that he can be a player that can contribute to a team uh, both yeah. on the pitch and from a leader perspective too. Yeah. yeah. You know, you saw the way he was the first one to spin on solo when spin on solo went down the other club teammates. So there's a little more of a bond there with them, but he, he shows that like quality, that human quality of leadership, which is so important. So do we need a jock? I don't know. I personally don't think we do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know I Mourinho like... likes him, but how much is Mourinho willing to, to sacrifice in other areas to spend 20 million on Granit Xhaka? Exactly. Like, you know, I we, we had this on the front today. Someone actually said uh, they liked the way Cristante played yesterday. He could yep. make for a good jacket alternative. And that just, you know, confirmed to me what I've been saying for a while now, which is that they're the same player. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, like if they if they were the same player in a different mold, okay, I could understand signing both of them. But look, I can't see the best of jacket working alongside the best of Cristante. It's, it's like the, one of our members said today, they, they, they're an alternative to one another. Mm-hmm. They, they, they complement other styles of midfielders better than they complement each other. So why would you spend over 20 million on Cristante back in the day, which, okay, has been absorbed by now because he's had a few extensions. Um, so he's, you know, his cost been brought in a little bit, but over 20 million back in the day and then spend a further 20 million on Jacker now when you've got problems elsewhere that need reinforcing. Yeah. You know, it's... It's, you're looking at either way. You're looking at 20 million substitute, no matter which guy gets thrown to the bench, because they're both they both don't have that that pace to really justify coupling them up together in the same first eleven. You know, Jacker as good as he's been, and let me be clear. You know, I think these are both good players. I'm not saying like either one of them. I'm not saying that they're bad. I haven't said at all that they're rubbish or anything like that. Yeah. I just think that if you're in the conversation for top six or top four, obviously the talent pool limits in terms of what what you have to sign to actually make those positions um and Xhaka is not something that we don't already have at the club in terms of talent level like even as in his best performance against France what people were praising him for in terms of what Roma are missing quote unquote was a guy who's slide tackling backwards and recovering making recovery tackles and we just discussed it in the last episode where if you're if you're making recovery tackles you made a mistake in the first mm-hmm. place you know and in Xhaka's case it's not, not it's mostly because he does a lot for the Swiss team so he's pushing forward and he doesn't have the, the pace to, to maintain that, you know, all those defensive duties at the same time. So he has to recover. And I don't, I don't blame him for that because, like, for example, in that France game, when Pogba scored that, that weldy from outside the box, it's because two Swiss players, um, you know, doubled up on the, on the France guy on the wing. And then, you know, if you're going to double up on someone, you make sure they don't make the pass. Yeah. But for some reason, they, they let um, them make the pass in the middle to Pogba. So Xhaka ends up with too much to do. That's not that's not Xhaka's fault. Yeah. I'm not going to blame him for that. But he just doesn't, like my fundamental point is he, he doesn't have the pace to carry out all the things that he wants to do for his team. And that's the exact same thing we've seen from Brian Cristante in Roma. He's, yeah. he's a, like you said, he's a leader. He likes to take on responsibility, but he doesn't necessarily have that foot speed to do mm-hmm. everything he wants to do. So they're, they're just, you're, either way, you're looking at a 20 million sub here between the two of them. And uh, yeah, if, if mentality really counts for that much, I guess sign Jacker because he, he really is a leader and, and so is Cristante, but we could be left with money short elsewhere. Yeah. And uh, one of those areas elsewhere is left back. 
where Roma, unsurprisingly, Steve, have been linked with a ton of left-back targets after Spinazzola's long-term injury. Uh, who is the best name that you've seen linked so far? I'll give you I'll give you a few names. There's Ben Sabini, who uh, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that rightly at all. Maybe Ben Sabini, I don't know. Um, plays in the Bundesliga. We, we reported it about his uh, Roma's interest in him on KZZTOTI.com, rumored to be 20 million interest. Uh, Emerson, we saw yesterday, now a Europa League champion, uh, sorry, Euro champion with Italy. And Alioski, who played for North, North Macedonia in this tournament, uh, plays for Leeds and he's out of contract, so he's a free transfer. And then Alex Hellas, who we know from back in the day with Inter. And then this season, most recently with Manchester United after they beat us in the Europa League, uh, apparently available on loan. So what, what sounds most enticing to you out of those names? And is there anyone else I've missed that you, you might fancy Roma have a punt out on the Mercato? Um, I'd like to keep it low cost, especially until we see what kind of conditions Spinazzola returns in. So Alex Tellis on loan might not be the end of the world because it would be a loan deal. I don't know what kind of wages he commands. Um, you know, I like Emerson. I thought he was good for him with his first stint. And I thought he was pretty good for Italy yesterday. He's not going to do as much as Spinazzola pushing down the flank. But I saw the rumored price that Chelsea are looking for for him was 20 million euros. And I know Napoli yeah. also is interested. I know Spalletti really wants him. Uh, at Napoli, so it probably isn't a feasible move. Um, you know, maybe the, a little bit of the nostalgia from his original, you know, Roma stint and then how he played for Italy the last two matches kind of puts him at the top of my list. But I, like I said, I don't think it's feasible. I don't know much of anything about Ben Sabani besides the, you know, rumor we had about him. Alioski uh, on a free, depending on his wage demands and maybe the length of the contract might not be the worst thing in the world if it's like a two year deal. Um, mm -hmm you know, experienced player played for Leeds. Uh, from what I read, Leeds had said they wanted to resign him, but the player wanted to move on and they wished him as yeah. the best. So if they wanted to resign him, there's a reason, you know, they were like a mid-level premier league club last year. Not, not, not a terrible team. Um, so like I said, I, I'd like to stay low cost short term uh, until we see exactly what we have in Spinazzola when he comes back and exactly what we have in Calafiori too. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So are you, are you, are you going for Alioski, Alex Tellers in that kind of area? If we can do Alioski short term, I, I wouldn't see a problem with that. Um, I don't know much about him as a player. I know he was pretty active for North Macedonia, one of their better players, but again, not well, a, a big time team. He's the closest alternative to Spinazzola's yeah. style in, in terms yes. of that. Like he's not really left back. He's just a guy who happens to play on the left and yeah. like, marauds forward and, and scores goals, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so style-wise, it might be the, the best fit if Mourinho yeah. wanted to integrate him into Spinazzola's role, and then you could, you know, yeah, reintegrate Spinazzola. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, what about the, the, the last, you know, elephant in the room up front, striker situation? Is there any progress there that you've read about, Steve? Is there anyone that, any hope in terms of bringing a new sign in there? I haven't seen much of anything, have you, on the striker front lately? I know the Euros have kind of no. delayed the, the Mercato, but especially for Italian teams with Italy still involved, but I haven't seen much of anything. Uh, no, I, like, I saw like some form. Said, sorry, like you said, I, I've mostly seen talk about Jacko staying and, and having a yeah. good feeling with, with Mourinho. Yeah, and that wouldn't, as much as a lot of Roma fans wouldn't really love it. I don't know how much I would love it either because he is getting up there. And we keep talking about how he needs to be. We need to move on from him. Um, if Mourinho can get the best out of him, he's still a serviceable player at his age. I think as long as the workload is not overwhelming him, I think there's could still be some good qualities that we've seen. He can do some good things when he's turned on in certain matches um, yeah. and maybe Mourinho can turn him on a lot more than Fonseca did um, last season or the season before. But I mean, I saw a couple of four members like 
half jokingly say, well, Belotti had a you know terrible tournament for Italy, so now at least his uh, value won't be overly inflated <laughs> if we want to make a move for him. Um, but I haven't seen much on the striker front, so that's why I wouldn't be shocked if Jekko's still our striker come August, whatever the season ends up starting. Mm. I, I'd like that guy from Austria. Uh, I've forgotten his name, so I, I don't want to like invent a name, but the guy who came on as a sub, not Anatovic, but the other guy. The other guy, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I thought I thought he'd be worth taking a look at, but then again, he plays in the Bundesliga, probably plays for a competitive club, so he might be a little bit out of Roma's price range by the time they're done bidding. Um, but at Dzeko, as a lone striker, I don't fancy it anymore. I don't think yeah. he could do it. Um, I just feel like last season was very different from the season. Like some people give him flack for the last two seasons. At least uh, in the two seasons ago, at least he like his numbers were very good, were very respectful of someone his age. He was in double figures in assists and goals. Mm-hmm. So he did his job. Uh, last season was the first season ever where I really saw Jacko short of being able to do what he wants to do. Um, just definite signs of like of aging and, and just not being able to, his legs not wanting to do what his head can tell him. Um, so I, I don't fancy it as a lone striker. I think that's too much work for him nowadays. But maybe as a you know in a two striker system, like I keep pushing forward and, and like it's unlikely to happen under Mourinho unless something really, really changes. But still, I I I could justify him as part of a you know two up front system where he comes off the bench as an impact or, mm-hmm. or even starts, you know. Um that then he you know we retain the experience of uh Jekyll's know-how of closing out games, and that's valuable. But uh, beyond that. If, if we're planning to play him as like a complete forward again, I just think that we're going to have a shock where we just get uh, pushed back into our own half because you can't be launching balls up to Jekyll to pull them down. And and then what's he going to do? What, rely on Zaniolo? Uh, well, that's a great welcome back for Zaniolo from injury, you know, like him and Jekyll alone against the world. Something yeah. happened for me. <laughs> so, so the player uh, you're referring to, Sean, is Sasa Kaladzic, and he plays for uh, Stugart in the Bundesliga. So not yeah. one of the, not one of the bigger clubs, uh, and he's rated by transfer mar- market as a 22 million euro player. He had uh, 16 goals and five assists in the Bundesliga and 23 starts, 10 sub appearances last year. Yeah, I like I like the look of him. I think he's talented. I, th- I think he's like in that Skamaka mold, and that he can yeah. he can do both. You know, he can come deep, he can go up front, he can win balls, he can be a target man if he needs to be. Uh, Big boy, two I, meters tall, six foot seven in in standard. Yeah. I would, I'd really like to have a punt at him, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, we pretty much reached the end of, uh, what, 51? And yeah. I think we're, we're kind of like still processing the Italy win yesterday, you, being European champions, if you're an Azuri fan. So, so, yeah, something that no one has ever experienced in their lifetime, literally, because you'd have to be born back in 68 to, to have yeah. this. <laughs> so it certainly have to you be, wanna... uh, you'd have to be at least in your uh, late 50s, right? Uh, yeah, true. 60, yeah. No, it's, in your 60s. Yeah. 50s or 60s. Yeah, you'd be, you wouldn't be our age. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. But you're right, though. Yeah, you wouldn't have, yeah, there's not everyone is extinct from the 60s. So yeah. I missed out there. <laughs> but uh, I'll give it to you since you're, you're the, you're the, you're the guy who stayed loyal to Italy this, this tournament. So give, give us the last word on this episode, Steve. Yeah, I'm just happy Italy pulled it out. I'm sorry, Sean, that you're, you know, you had to be let down yesterday by the English, but I guess it was fitting that they lost in a penalty shootout being led by Gareth Southgate, who is known for missing his penalty back in the, the <laughs> 90s, I guess. And I, I want to ask you before we go real quick, because there was a couple of things we talked about everything from an Italian perspective at the beginning. Just two quick things. Okay. First, do you think the worst thing that could have happened to England yesterday was scoring so quickly? 
Yes, I said that in the episode before, remember? Yeah. I said um, the only way I could see England winning is like a blitz. Like, I mm-hmm. I, Don't get me wrong. Because I said that I could only see them winning 3-0, I didn't, I didn't mean that I saw England dominating Italy for 90 minutes. I just meant like, for example, in the France-Switzerland game where France had that good half hour where they went three goals unreplied. Mm-hmm. I thought that was how, that's the only way I could see England doing it. And yeah. after they scored yesterday, I thought, like me and the, like my family who I was watching it with, we were all like, "Look, you have to go for a second goal." Yeah. As soon as, soon as they didn't do that, I felt uneasy because I, I could not see England sitting on a one 0 lead and defending it successfully. Whereas yeah. Italy, I could see them doing that if they needed to do it. So. Yeah, agreed. I, I thought they sat back way too much as soon as they scored that goal. I think it was too early for them. And then on, in the penalty shootout, um, you know, you had three players who missed that mm-hmm. were all introduced to the match in like the last five minutes of extra time had barely any touches of the ball in Rashford, Sancho, and Saka. Young players too, yeah. for the most part. Is that, Saka had more time than, than the other two. Yeah, Saka, yeah. that's right. Saka came in a bit earlier, but the other two came in right at the end before the penalty right, yeah. shootout. Yeah. And he's a 19-year-old kid, Saka, and you have him yeah. shooting fifth. Like, I feel like if you're going to shoot him, you have to shoot him earlier. Uh, yeah. And... You know, you pulled off Jordan Henderson, who's experienced. You pulled off some other experienced players in the run of the match. Do you think they went with too young of a uh, lineup? I mean, Jack Grealish said he offered to shoot and he was passed over because Southgate had his five. I mean, a lot of pressure on three youngsters. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend like I understand the internals of how people decide a penalty shootout. Um, everyone's going to come out with a different version of their stories. Um, I know that Grealish said he, he offered, but that was after he was... Uh, you know, singled out by Roy Keane um, in the post-match. So, like, he offered that as as his version of events today. Mm. Uh, but the fact is, he didn't take the first five yesterday. So that that's really what counts the most. Yeah. You know, you, you can you can claim whatever you want the morning after, but you know, the facts speak for themselves. Um, I I don't think it's right that a 19-year-old be made to take the fifth penalty in in a major final at home at Wembley. Yeah. Um, I definitely don't agree with that, but. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, I wasn't thinking at the time. I was just thinking, put the ball in the net, and yeah. uh, I was I was as gutted as anyone when it, it got saved. Like, I was I was like literally my first reaction was, Saka hasn't done anything right all game. That's what I said to my family members, um, and this is a guy who I think is the young player of the tournament. I think yeah. He's had a really good tournament, but yesterday, as soon as he came on, he didn't offer anything, um, and said, ditto with Jordan Henderson, who's a more experienced player, but. Again, off the bench, he did not offer anything yesterday, yeah. um, which is unlike him compared to his other performances in the tournament. And that just reaffirms what I, what I felt last time around, which is that England at home in front of a packed crowd is a is not necessarily an advantage for England. Yeah. Um, and also, I, you know, I felt that Italy have a an advantage on their bench in that, like the like he's, like I said before, the players really buy into what Italy are doing so you don't get that drop off between your first 11 and your subs because they come in they give all the effort and heart and and execution you know, they apply themselves to the same level as the first 11 whereas England yesterday with their subs um, I'm not talking about Rashford and Sancho because like you said you know they, they literally only came out the end but Henderson and Saka in particular it, it was a huge drop off between uh, the players who were warmed up like warmed up from the beginning to, to those two who just didn't didn't perform you know but um, I just want to be clear that even though my reactions yesterday were, you know, like like a fan, I was, you know, um, falling into negativity by the end of the game. You know, by, by this morning, I got over it. And uh, I definitely expressed my support for those three players that missed. And, but 
more than this, they stepped, they stepped up their responsibility. They were the first, in the first five, they stepped up at Wembley, took a penalty. And that's the end of the story for me because you know, the abuse they've gone through today is totally unjustifiable. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I just think that I'm, I'm appreciative to the England team for everything they've done in terms of like giving us good times this summer. Um, getting to a final is, not, is no, no bad job whatsoever. And hopefully they take the positive out of this and, and use it to move forward. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a penalty shootout is always a crapshoot. We know this, like Jorginho, who is Italy's anchor and, you know, one of the, the best penalty shooters in the Premier League, missed yesterday because, yeah. guess what? Jordan Pickford knew some of his tendencies, was patient, and was able to make the save. Whereas yeah. Federico Bernardeschi, who very yeah. few Italy fans wanted him on the team, um, maybe Matteo Politano should have been on the team. He did the job in both penalty shootouts. So it just shows yeah. that. It is a crapshoot. I was just surprised that a 19-year-old would be in a position to take a decisive penalty. Uh, yeah. Someone who was also showed nerves, like you said, during his his introduction to the match, didn't do much like he had in other matches. So a, a bit, you know, of a head scratcher. But you're right, you know, Definitely. in the end, and and none of them deserve any of the, the 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 garbage they're taking on social media and elsewhere. It's just it's not right. No. Yeah. I got nothing else to say. So. Yeah, I've got nothing else. So. Uh, it'll be a bit of a flyby of the seat of our pants week at CDT because there's not, you know, a whole lot going on now. The Euros are over. We'll be waiting for some yeah. some transfer rumors to maybe write up some know. transfer rumors. We don't know what to expect other than Re Patricio and Temptation Island is, yeah. is happening. <laughs> We're still, <laughs> still waiting for the, the New Balance jersey drop. So if that happens this week, look for coverage. I know Bren's got something in the hopper waiting once it's finally released. Same with Patricio signing. Uh if you know if it continues to be a slow news week, I might do another Italy piece looking ahead at some of the things we talked about in terms of who whose stock is up, who's down, maybe who who might not be around to come to the World Cup, things like that. But you know, other than that, it's uh you know, it's the, have, the dog days of summer, I guess, from calcio terms. I have I have a, a little gut feeling that the, the shirts might drop tomorrow because um Tuesdays and Thursdays, I mean I, I used to work in marketing, so I know Tuesdays and Thursdays are the ideal ideal days of the week when you want to make a drop because people are, are fresh from uh, getting back to work on Monday. Um, they tend to tune out of their work week on those two days. So may, maybe they're waiting for Tuesday. Maybe they're waiting for Thursday. Um, now that the year is over, it, it should be any day now. We'll see. Um, I'm also expecting a lot of a lot of official moves on the women's front. Uh, Lindsay Tomas waved goodbye to AS Roma, which is a big blow for Roma. She was by far the best Roma player in, in the first season that she arrived, which was two seasons ago. Uh, last, last season, her contribution was more understated, but still, you know, there's a reason why she's going to Champions League playing AC Milan next season. She's making a jump up and Roma losing her. Um, and then we're waiting for the official confirmations of uh, players like Tysa in midfield. Um, who's going to replace Tomal? We don't know. Someone at striker, maybe. And Lucia Di Guillermo, who's an up-and-coming Italian defender. So we're waiting for stuff like that. I'm going to be focused on the women's side. Um, but, yeah, but like Steve said, it's mostly an ad hoc week where we're really playing it by ear. Yeah, so, you know, if there's something to talk about, Sean and I will be back next week or, you know, soon thereafter once we have some transfers and other things to talk about. But until then, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to everybody soon.